listening to a podcast of Elam Lutheran Church in Osakis, Minnesota. Our passion is to be an oasis of life-giving water where lost and wandering souls can find eternal refreshment. For more information and to find out more about our ministries, please visit osakiselamchurch.com. Or if you're in the area, come visit us in person. Well, today we're continuing our series on 1 John. We're walking through this entire epistle verse by verse. We're in chapter 2 today, verses 18 through 27. So I'll ask you to rise this morning for the reading of God's Word. 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 through 27. John says this, Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from Him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as His anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Well, friends, today we're talking about God. More specifically, we are talking about Jesus. And for many of us, the thought has never crossed our mind that it's possible to talk about God without talking about Jesus. But for an increasing number of people today, that's just not true. The name Jesus might not even enter into the picture when they talk about God. And maybe that's you this morning. So let's kind of frame our question this way. Can you have God without Jesus? When we survey the the religious landscape of 21st century America, and really the world today, we live in a world that philosopher Charles Taylor calls God-haunted. He says we live in a God-haunted America. What does he mean? Well, by this he means that our culture is one where people claim to be less religious than ever. More and more people have this confession where they say, I have no need for God, right? The rise of the nuns, we talk about that. But Taylor says, you know, it's really not all that simple. He says that in trying to, to crop God out of the picture, what is what, which is what is happening, 
There are ghosts and vestiges of unsatisfied hopes and desires that just kind of keep coming back. People still long for something transcendent, something that gives their life ultimate meaning. So what they do, what we do, is we invest our religious zeal and fervor in those other areas of life, right? So it's not as if there's no longer a desire for something ultimate, something God. It's just that those desires, they, they migrate over to other things. And things like work, sports, marriage, the treadmill, the gym, hobbies, etc. Yet the longing for something eternal remains. As Julian Barnes, an agnostic writer, he, he says in this painfully honest line, and I, you know, I read this and my heart just kind of breaks for him. He says, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. He's God-haunted. As the author of Ecclesiastes says, God has set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. So the search for God without Jesus continues. In our text this morning, false teachers, and not teachers from outside the church, but teachers from within the church itself, are claiming that Jesus was not God, but was in fact some kind of lesser being. As I was reading through some of the commentaries and studying this, a number of people actually believe that this book was written against the teachings of one in particular, someone by the name of Serentius, who was a contemporary of John and denied that Jesus was fully divine. And Serentius gained quite a following at this time. So John refers to, to people who teach this way, that, that Jesus is not in fact God. He, te- he, he refers to them as, as antichrists, which means they're opposed to God. They're opposed to Christ, against Christ. And he calls out these false teachers hard in verse 22. Listen to this. He says, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. So who is the Antichrist? The one who denies Jesus. Shusako Endo was a Japanese writer and theologian who wrote a classic novel called Silence. It was recently made into a, a blockbuster film directed by Martin Scorsese, and it tells the story of two Jesuit priests who become missionaries to Japan during a period of an intense Christian persecution in the 17th century. Now, at this particular time, when authorities encountered Christians, what they would do is they would, they would torture them in horrific ways until they recanted. And how they, how they did this, how they asked people to recant is they, they created these images called fumiers. And basically what a fumier is, is a, it's, a, it's generally like a, a piece of stone that has an image of Jesus' face carved into it. And so what they would do to the Christians after they'd tortured them, they'd set the fumier on the ground and they would ask them to recant by stepping on top of this image of Christ, in a sense, trampling their Savior underfoot. So this is a picture of what it means to deny Jesus, trampling the fumier. Now, if I were to take a straw poll here this morning and to ask people, hey, how many of you have denied Jesus? 
my guess is I'm not going to get very many people raising their hands. And many of us are Christians, right? We confess Jesus is Lord. We, we believe in Him. We say the Apostles' Creed together. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, etc. But here's the thing. Denial of Jesus happens primarily in our attitudes and actions rather than our words. I'm going to say that again because it's important. Denial of Jesus happens primarily in our attitudes and our actions rather than just our words. Trampling His image occurs not just externally, but inwardly in our own hearts as well. Augustine hits us hard with the law when he says this. I was just slayed when I heard this. He says, each person ought to question his own conscience whether he be an antichrist. Whoa. So, how do we know? Well, simple way, ask yourself this question. Where am I seeking hope and security in life? What is the thing that if I lost it, I wouldn't be okay anymore? And how much of my time, energy, money, and resources do I spend trying to protect it? If that thing, or maybe for you it's a person, if that thing or person is anything other than Jesus, you've got an antichrist on your hands. You've got a God, lowercase g, God, without Jesus. And a God without Jesus will let you down every single time. Like we discussed last week with that that image of the I-35 bridge collapse, right? They're not big enough to sustain the loads of our ultimate hopes and desires. So it all comes crashing down. The very first step then is to actually name that thing. Verbalizing it specifically. So let me ask. This morning, what is that for you? What is that for you? What, what is it that rivals your allegiance to Jesus? What is the thing that tempts you to trample His image? See, the most dangerous antichrist of all is the one that resides in our own heart. Here's the more important question, though, right? How does God treat people who do this? How does God treat those who trample His image, who deny Him? Well, let's look at an example from Scripture. The Apostle Peter, you remember this guy? Peter, right? Always sticking his foot in his mouth. I look at Peter and I'm like, man, okay, there's some hope for me. If uh, Jesus wanted this guy on his team, right? Do you remember what what he did at the Last Supper? Jesus had just dropped this this massive truth bomb, right? Like they're just enjoying a good meal together, and Jesus is like, 
oh yeah, by the way, one of you will, retri- will betray me. Right? He just, he just dropped this, this kind of bomb and he was referring to Judas, Judas, of course. So they went out to the Mount of Olives and Peter, brimming over with unfounded confidence, as per usual, essentially tells Jesus, look, if everyone else abandons you, I won't. Even if I have to die, I will never deny you. Jesus says what? Truly I tell you this night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And that's exactly what Peter did. He denied Jesus. Not once. Not twice. Three times. And Peter, recognizing his own failure, went out and wept bitterly. Here's the rest of Peter's story, though. And this is exactly how God treats repentant sinners every single time without fail. He loves them. He forgives them. And he restores them. In fact, he used Peter in a powerful way, appointing him to lead the early church and trusting him with the care of some of the very first Christians, and in fact, using him to write a good portion of the New Testament. This is how Jesus treats deniers. Repentant deniers is he forgives them. And friends, this is the good news. Despite our faithlessness, he remains faithful. Despite the ways that our polytheistic hearts seek security, hope and fulfillment in things other than Jesus. Jesus never stops seeking us out. He goes after the lost sheep, and He won't stop until He finds them, throws them over His shoulder, and brings them back safely home to the fold. But this good shepherd goes even further than that, right? This good shepherd, what does He do? He lays down his life for his sheep. At the cross, our good shepherd bore the full brunt of the consequences of our sin, doing what we could not. As Paul says in Colossians 2, 13-15, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. You might have noticed as I was reading through our text today that there's one word in particular that gets repeated a number of different times. I think it happens five or six times in this passage today. And this isn't the first time John has used it in his letter either. The word is abide. Abide. John instructs the beloved people of his church, these ones being tempted away from Christ, to what? To abide in God. The word that's used here, because we don't use that in everyday language for the most part, What it really just means is to remain. It means to stay. It means to be steadfast. 
It means to continue in what you already know. So what helps us avoid the danger of these false teachers and being drawn away by the Antichrists and the Antichrists in our own heart? Well, the answer is simple. Abide in God. That's pretty clear. Which looks wonderful, crocheted on a pillow, right? But how do we do that? What what does that mean? In our day-to-day lives. Well, let me offer you three applications, three disciplines that help us abide in God. Number one, pray. What is prayer? We overcomplicate this. Prayer is talking to God, either aloud or silently, from our own hearts. That's the entire definition of prayer. That's as our catechism explains it. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul tells us to pray without ceasing. Now, what does that mean? Do we all just quit our day jobs and join a monastery? Well, probably not. But it does mean that God needs to be your go-to lifeline. He should be your most important conversation partner throughout your day. So how much time do you spend in conversation with your Savior? That's practice number one, pray. Number two, guys, read the Bible. Groundbreaking stuff here, I know, right? But it's so true. If prayer is how we talk to God, Scripture is how He talks to us. And whenever we open the pages of Scripture, we can have full confidence that God is speaking. And what's more, that's the only place we can go to and know with any certainty that we are hearing God's voice. But the thing is, we can't recognize someone's voice unless we hear it on the regular, right? Like if I FaceTime my dad once every six months, I'm going to start to forget what he looks like. I'm going to start to forget how his voice sounds. I'm going to start to forget his, his personality, who he is, how he is. So yeah, read the Bible, and not because you have to, to be a good Christian, but because you'll learn more about God's love for you. And I don't know, maybe this looks like a one-year Bible reading plan. Maybe this looks like a two-year Bible reading plan. Maybe Bible reading plans just fill you with guilt. I've been there, and for you right now, it's praying through the Psalms. I don't know, but I do know that God promises His Word will always accomplish its purposes. Pray, read the Bible. Number three, go to church, which you guys are doing a very good job of this morning. And I don't just mean virtual church. God wired us in such a way that we need real, regular, flesh and blood human connection. Hebrews 10.25 exhorts us to not neglect meeting together, as is the habit of some, but to encourage one another. And maybe you've heard people say this. I know I have, and I've heard different versions of it, but people will say something like, you know, I can get just as much out of listening to a sermon podcast as I can showing up in church on a Sunday. You heard this? Does that sound familiar? Yeah? Okay, for the sake of argument, maybe, but it's also not just about you, It's about your neighbor. Your neighbor needs you in church. They need to hear you singing the hymns, 
maybe even out of tune, as is my case. They need your presence. They need your participation. They need your encouragement and your prayer. Your neighbor needs to see you taking communion, receiving the same grace that they receive, reminding them that they are not alone in their need. So if you won't go for yourself, go for your neighbor. We need each other in the flesh. Pray, read the Bible, go to church. Cultivating those disciplines will go a long way in teaching us to abide, to remain steadfast in Christ, and not to be deceived by lies. This is nothing new, is it? John's clear about that. He's saying these, these are things that you already know, and I'm just simply reiterating them to you. He's just returning to the beginning. So, Back to our million-dollar question at the beginning. Can you have God without Jesus? John's answer is a resounding no. God without Jesus will let you down every single time. God without Jesus is a God without a Savior. It's a God without love, which means it's a God without hope. And if you don't have hope, what's the point in anything? In the end, then, everything hinges on how you answer the question, who is Jesus? Is he God or not? C.S. Lewis was someone who wrestled very deeply with this question, and he puts the argument this way in his classic, Mere Christianity. Stay with me on this. It's lengthy, but so good. He says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people, people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that I was that he excuse me now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend and consequently however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem I have to accept the view that he was and is God My prayer for you this morning is that the Holy Spirit would work in your hearts, so that you would come to the same conclusion. There is no God without Jesus. And that, my friends, is really, really good news. Hey friends, Pastor Luke here. Thanks so much for tuning in. I trust that you've been blessed by our message from God's Word today. Hey, we'd love to connect with you more. 
If you have comments or questions, you can email me directly at pastorchellog at gmail.com. That's Pastor K J O L H A U G at gmail.com. As we wrap up our time together today, please receive this benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace. Amen.